But make no mistake, there will be a trial, and when that trial ends, senators will have to decide if they believe Donald John, Donald John Trump incited the erection, insurrection against the United States. Speaking with just a little flight information, we're flying at an altitude of 37,000 feet and our airspeed is 400 miles an hour. A couple little facts here, I'm packing a Colt King Cobra, that's a 357 caliber firearm with a black rubber grip and a 6 inch barrel, capable of piercing body armor at a distance of up to 27 feet, and I can put a hole in human bone and flesh the size of the Grand Canyon, which, by the way, is coming up on the left hand side of the plane, so just sit back and relax and enjoy the rest of the plane. No, not you, not you. Your organization's terrible. Should I tell you? Should I tell you? Oh, you Boy Scout, but you know life. You know life. You know I'm totally off script right now. Hey, News Dive listeners, it's Sam Carliner. Right now, I'm joined by Sophie, our producer. What's up? Hi. And Shane is stuck in traffic, uh, but he will be coming in a little bit. Uh, and we have an episode with some live reporting. Yes, that's right. We're not just talking about what everyone's doing wrong. We're going to talk about what everyone's doing wrong and how we did it better. Uh, I was just in D.C. covering inauguration. I'm going to be joined by one of the people that I traveled there with, Miriam Alanis. She is a editor and writer at Left Voice. She's actually a returning guest. I'm really excited to talk about that. Before we get into it, I want to pitch that Shane has a piece on our medium. Has a piece on our medium about the $15 minimum wage and how he thinks it's wrong of, uh, and I also do think it's wrong for people to not support it. That is, I'll ask him for our medium page later. I always forget to remember it. Uh, follow us at News Dive Radio on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and you can catch all our episodes. Newsdive.fm slash no anchor.fm slash newsdive. You can check out all of our stuff uh, on all our platforms. If I sound a little bit hazy, it's because uh, Miriam is actually in the waiting room, so we don't want to keep her waiting for too long. So Sophie, you want to let her in? You're back on News Dive, Miriam Alanis. Alani, Alanis. Sorry, I keep pronouncing it uh, a lot as Morissette that way. No, it's totally fine. I feel like I'm super open to different interpretations of my name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it is great to have you back on the show. As I was just telling our listeners, this is not your first time, but it is your first time since we've lived in a democracy. Nothing bad will ever happen in the United States ever again. Yeah, it seems like it's time to go back to brunch. I... <laughs> we should have prepared mimosas for this episode. Yeah. 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 So we were just hanging out in D.C. Uh, just, you know, just hang out. No particular reason. No, we were covering what I think we both agree was a super boring inauguration. It was an interesting one. I think it was, like, not what I was expecting. Um, but it was, like, pretty weird, both because of the pandemic and there was, like, a lot of military, but not as much as I was expecting. Yeah. Uh, well, for, for our listeners who don't know, we got into our hotel and just immediately there's, like, National Guard walking around uh, but yeah, then if like when we were walking on the streets most of the time, like you, you wouldn't know, like if you hadn't watched the news, you wouldn't know. And you hadn't like seen them earlier. You wouldn't know that there were troops there in certain areas. But yeah, then when you got to the Capitol, they had the fences. Yes. This is going to be, by the way, way more free form. Like I didn't prepare questions. I was just going to like. I love it. I love it. 
No, it's great. No, I was just going to say something actually about, um, you know, in a lot of the media reports, how they were saying like DC's like Iraq, uh, it's like militarized and all this stuff. And it's, it's just like such a bad, I mean, for so many reasons, such a bad comparison. And it was definitely like super militarized on like other years. Um, but at the same time, like, yeah, the situation in like semi colonies is way different. Like people are persecuted. Like you fear for your for your life, you know. And it's not that people don't fear for their life every day around the cops here in the U.S. But um, the media reports were, I think, a little bit hyped up. Yeah, I'm trying to find a tweet that I saw that's been going around today. Uh, but before, since I can't find that right away, I think I think that's a really good point. And I mean, one thing is that because um, this was my second like DC reporting trip this year, and and I don't know what it was like prior to the pandemic, but certainly like with the pandemic, houselessness is like so awful there. Like you you walk around yeah. and there's tents, and uh, what people have been pointing out is you have like all of these. One, you have like all of this just emphasis on inauguration oh look at its star-studded event uh, gushing over the diversity of the warmongers and incarcerators uh and they didn't they shouldn't have spent that money they're exposing workers to a pandemic they're not doing anything for the people uh who are who are living on the street now uh and there's all these now pr videos of people giving like the national guard cookies and pizza and stuff when they have a $740 billion budget. Um, and yeah, no, it really, it really is disappointing that like, I mean, this is the thesis of this show. It is dis like, there's no reason that like this show should be asking these questions more than massive platforms that, you know, are where a lot of people go to get their news. Yeah, no. And like the way, you know, the big media covered this whole spectacle was, you know, in line with the interests of the people that, that fund them, you know, the interests of the capitalist class. And so that's why it was really exciting, even though like definitely screw the inauguration, but at least we had some, you know, working class media on the ground there trying to, you know, decipher what what was really going on and what what Biden was really trying to say in his speech is like empty and hollow speech around unity and what he didn't say what he didn't say around you know the the crises that we're in um and the fact that he doesn't really have a program to resolve it um so i th i think it was you know like definitely I'm glad that we went um, to have that firsthand account of the situation. Yeah. Uh, also, I've been saying, like, on a more selfish personal note, it was good practice because I, like, knowing me and I, you know, knowing you too, like, we're going to eventually cover stuff where we are going to have stuff going on. And it was nice to get that horrible sleep schedule practice of, like, yeah. preparation. For people who don't know, we, we, like, left it, like, it's dead in the morning. <laughs> Um, didn't sleep a lot. Also, the tweet that I mentioned earlier, it's by Igor Bobik from, uh, what is it? From Huffington Post. And he's going, talking to National Guard at the Capitol today, I was struck how young so many of them were, barely out of school, first time ever visiting the Capitol, where kids their age would normally line up for tours. Now they're here in uniform carrying weapons, which, like, I'm, my stance has been, like, we shouldn't really have any troops in the capital. I am really concerned for how that's going to impact, you know, uh, workers who aren't in the military. But I also think that it's been so interesting watching, like, the corporate media, like, they don't, they don't under, like, they don't understand anything that isn't, like, this elite media class. Like, that's, yeah, that's what, that's what the military is. It's recruiting a bunch of, like, young people who usually don't have, um, means out of poverty don't necessarily have class consciousness and I, I i just i'm i'm in a like i really can't stand uh dc reporters mood and i think part of that was the amount of time we spent in the hotel watching cnn 
yeah <laughs> that was like most of our time there actually but I feel like that's because you know it was kind of hard to like get get any closer but it's also good to watch what you know what the line of the bourgeoisie is like we get that from watching CNN and Fox News um of course like the bourgeoisie isn't homogenous like they have their own political divisions but at the end of the day like <laughs> the message was kind of the same like this sort of like bipartisan going back to normal there's you know like overlooking the bigger political crisis that's at hand the fact that neoliberalism has been in crisis like there's a reason why the trumpist phenomena emerge in the first place and it's not going to go away and we're not going to be able to go back to this like extreme center politics that that's what brought us trumpism and that's what brought us these crises um so there's really like nothing to celebrate politically um but that wasn't really the tone <laughs> when watching channels like cnn the one that really got me was when he was walking he and like everyone else was walking biden was and everyone else was walking to the white house and like the cnn reporter who was there keeps yelling mr president can you unite the country and like keeps being like we, we're gonna see if we can get him to answer this question like it's a big thing you're not asking about policy uh you're, you're it's and yeah you you are right that they're really they want to push the unity message because the only other option is acknowledging why we're not united and that would mean having to acknowledge things that have to do with their uh economic class their how they maintain their power and uh, that's not the interest yeah i mean it, it was really in a way funny watching them try to say things to talk about when like clearly they can't say anything of substance um i mean you pointed out that like the inauguration itself was run like a high school graduation ceremony <laughs> but yeah. and, and i think anyone who watched it knew that but like they they had to fluff it up um and yeah i'm just really interested in like i don't know what do you think like people are, are what their the media class is gonna is gonna talk about when they can't necessarily milk Trump for everything he's worth? Or, or do you think they'll even uh, continue to milk that? Well, I think that right now, like, there's a lot of momentum on the side of the Democrats going, you know, after the events of last week. Um, and the, the left is sort of eating up some of this. Um, and they're sort of also calling for this sort of unity um, against the the so-called the threat of the fascists, which, you know, not to minimize at all the dangers of this armed uh, far right, um, but at the same time, like completely glossing over um, our class enemies who are who are made up of a lot of the people who are in the Democratic Party who are making these calls. So I don't know, I think like the media is going to have continue this sort of celebratory tune for a while. And I think that like, to be frank and to be fair, like a lot of people, a lot of Americans are actually, they have some hopes, although it's a misplaced hope, a hope that things will get better for them after four years of like the complete disaster of Trump um so we on the left we have to be a little patient people are going to have an experience with biden and um just as sort of i remember when obama became president and i was a lot younger then but i i was a, a supporter of obama and as soon as I, I i remember the bailouts um the auto bailouts and i was like okay <laughs> obama is like definitely not what I thought he was like there was so much momentum and so much hype um of course the media is gonna like try to run away with all of this momentum and hype for as long as possible but like they're also gonna have to report at a certain point the fact that there's gonna be bailouts and there's gonna be austerity um and you know their U.S. imperialism is gonna continue its agenda um so 
you know, I think it's going to be a short-lived momentum. And, like, Biden doesn't have a base of support, a strong base of support. There are a lot of people who voted for him because of the politics of lesser evilism. Um, and like I said, who might have some expectations from him, um, might be a little bit excited about, you know, his administration. But I think all of that is on really, really shaky ground. So we'll see how long it lasts. Yeah, I, I at risk of uh, pissing off a chunk of our uh, listeners, it, this is all in good faith, everyone. I am interested in your take on the Bernie Sanders memes uh, that hit grumpy Bernie and his mittens is this big hype because Left Voice, the magazine you're, you're an editor at that I also contribute to, uh, is very is very anti-Bernie, believes that we should, uh, that the left, leftists, we should be breaking with Bernie Sanders and also the squad and, and that type of approach to politics. Um, I mean, what do you, what do you think since that's been such a big talking point post or not even talking point, memeing point post inauguration? You know, I'm not going to lie. I thought some of them were funny. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, it was a nice comedic relief. Um, and also some of them, they weren't all pro Bernie. Um, there were some that, um, you know, were were a little bit more critical of, of Bernie. And, and, you know, to be fair, I used to be a Bernie Sanders supporter. And when when I when I talk about like, you know, Bernie Sanders, it's it's really his politics and his approach that I, I think is a dead end, right? Like, and we already see we see it now. Like, Bernie's not even in the cabinet like he's he's really marginalized i feel like we saw that at the inauguration like he's he's a nobody in the democratic party um and the fact that joe biden even became president i mean he bernie had a lot of support um and the democrats did everything possible they united together um to make sure that bernie sanders does not become the nominee and they didn't adopt a lot of his most popular campaign proposals like Medicare for all, they completely abandoned that. Um, So I think it really goes to show that like working with the Democrats is a complete dead end. Um, And that, you know, if we want to actually uh, get what we want, we have to fight for it ourselves with our own methods. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's super, is, you know, it's like sad to see um, Bernie Sanders just like totally marginalized, but that's that's his politics. Um, and I think a lot of people are, and that's why we've seen sort of a shift to the left, like after the experience of both of his campaigns, they've become really disillusioned. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's an interesting, interesting sort of time. Um, for people like Sanders, people like AOC, and I know right now they're gonna they're gonna try they're gonna try to push the Democrats to the left, but the Democrats are only moving to the right right now. Um, so I think more and more people might come to the realization that that their approach is a dead end. If we want to overthrow capitalism, um, it's it's not going to be the way to do it. I also want to go back to the. Uh the point you made because this was a conversation we were having on the train um the point you made about how you know we can't take these uh the threat of you know far right for for granted oh shane is here um co-host shane sorosi i don't think he was here when, when the last time you came on the show but yeah let him in sophie but yeah so we are now officially joined by the show's producer sophia Danoskli, co-host shane sorosi and our guest Miriam Alanis, uh, we've Hello. been talking about our trip to DC, and now we're sort of pivoting to our takeaways of like what comes next. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I was gonna ask. Uh, what was I gonna ask? I was gonna ask because um, we were talking about this on the train ride back. Uh, the sort of the I guess balance between dealing with you know far-right groups uh like literal white supremacists uh militias 
but then also the fact that a lot of it is getting overhyped to uh you know, sort of um, push for uh, literally a second Patriot Act. Um, and I'm, I'm, Miriam, I'm interested in your takes on the balance of that, figuring out, like, how how we move forward with both of those threats um, and oftentimes both of them playing off of one another in a harmful way. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you, you brought up a lot of really good points. Like, the far right is a threat. Um, they're not, I wouldn't define them as fascists, but they are armed, they're militant, um, and there's a potential that they're going to grow because of the political situation, um, because a lot of these people are middle class and the economic situation is bad, and part of it is like their material response, their reactionary response, but they're also very racist, very xenophobic. Um, so all of those things are very true, but at the same time, like we have to be really clear about the fact that we also are fighting the state. We're fighting the capitalist class and a lot of the rhetoric of the Democrats is trying to obscure that fact that our primary fight is with the far right. Um, but right now, like the far right is there, they're not super organized, um, and then, but the state has this repressive apparatus that's insane that, you know, if we protested on the streets this summer, we know what they're capable of. Also, and, oh, sorry, um, to interject, um, like right before we started uh, talking, I think it was on Facebook, the, in London, the Socialist Workers Party, their page was taken down. Um, so we are seeing like a lot of left-leaning pages and working class pages being taken down too. I just wanted to interject that. No, totally. And like, you know, the this bill that Biden wants to push, this like domestic terrorism bill, um, it's not going to be used only to repress people like the people that were trying to, you know, have the siege on the Capitol last week, but like it, they're going to use that to repress us on the left who are also... We're, we're actually trying to, you know, challenge the state and the role of the state. Um, so it's it's really tricky in navigating that. And also, you know, at times, like, um, when it's convenient for the state, they actually, uh, the they, by they, I mean the capitalist class, they lean on these reactionary sectors to put forward their program and their agenda. And we saw this earlier in the year when there were protesters in uh, the Capitol in Michigan who were protesting for reopenings. And the Wall Street Journal was supporting these far-right protesters there because it, you know, what they were protesting for aligned with the interests of capital. But last week, um, when those interests didn't align, that didn't happen. So we do see the state um, leaning on these sectors at times. Um, so there's a relationship and there's a link there as well. Um, so, so yeah, I, I do think the far right poses a threat to a certain degree, but we can't forget that, you know, more than anything, our, one of our biggest threats is um, the capitalist class and the state that is that was built to protect that class that uses their repressive apparatus to repress people like us when we want to fight. Um, so it's, it's a really complicated discussion to navigate, but I think it's important to bring out and highlight those things. Yeah, I want to actually shout out an article I read by in The Intercept recently by Mike Giglio, Giglio uh, which is basically what's next for the militias. And the reason why I really liked the article is because he basically he's like been interviewing throughout the year a lot of militias and like he basically highlights obviously like there are going to be the white supremacists and militias who get violent but he was like yeah like talking to most of these people they're like yeah we didn't actually uh, think it was a good move for people to storm the capital because we like the police and we want them to do their jobs um, so I think that's also, and I mean, we, we saw that the police, you know, aligned with these people clearly. Um, 
But yeah, no, I also think that's a very, uh, you know, the threat is being overhyped. But a lot of these people, ultimately, they're trying to reinforce the state. <laughs> they're trying to reinforce, like, the world that we live in, uh, its racist policies, its, its pro-capital uh, policies. Um, and so they are, they, they were saying, like, in the article, like, yeah, Trump told us to stand down, so we're, we're just going to do that. Um, so I definitely think that, uh, again, not to, you know, understate, but also not to overstate. Like, a lot of these people seem a lot more bark than bite. Um, so I, I personally have been a lot more terrified about the the uh, tech company empowerment that's that's come as a result of the DC mob. And uh, I forget, I was going to pivot somewhere i don't really know. Uh, i just i just want to say that it's already illegal to storm the capital why why do we need new laws because they stormed the capital it's already illegal these people are already being arrested for attempting that so i it just makes no sense to me no and, and that's the thing it it what they're trying to do is you know call it domestic terrorism whatever um because they don't want to actually say that they want to strengthen their repressive apparatus to be able to not only you know like go after the far right but go after other folks who are also taking the streets after after the biggest movement in the in u.s history um so you know it, it comes in in light of what happened over the summer um, and maybe even this expectation because class struggle isn't going away. Like mm-hmm. um, in the coming period, there's probably going to be austerity and people are struggling and people are not happy on the left and on the right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, what, what, what else? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's like the and And you mentioned like the biggest movement in, in U S history and history or uh, it's, which I assume you mean the Black Lives Matter protests, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I, for me, that's that's a really important one because we know we know Facebook like long before we were even having this conversation. Facebook literally worked with with the FBI to target Black Lives Matter activists. Like, yeah. I do not want these companies giving any power, given any power, given any praise. Um, I mean, we're trying to. I'm trying to book. Um, someone from the alphabet union because i think a really important topic to have is you know you have people bringing up how we should have um more decentralized social media platforms which i agree but then i also think at a lot of these big companies we need more worker control um because these these are not places that should have any uh you know that really care about democracy in any meaningful form and are increasingly working with U.S. national security, uh, like they're essentially becoming state platforms, state-owned platforms, uh, or or regulated platforms. So I I do just, I am so scared of where this goes. Um, That's just my little tangent on this. I did sort of, unless you have other things to add, I wanted to pivot a little bit, which is the sort of what we're already seeing of Biden is he returned to the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, he revoked the travel ban, and, you know, one observation I made recently is that these aren't impressive. Like, pe- no. people are like, oh, in his first day, he's done this. It's like, they, four years it's the ago, low, had to be it's the low, in his first day. It's the low bar set by the Trump administration. Yeah. It's, I would, like, I think some people use the term, like, you pick the bar up off the ground, like, but I would say even less than that, Trump threw the bar in a ditch, and Biden is just taking the bar out of the ditch and then putting it back on the ground, uh, but yeah, Miriam, I'm, I'm also interested in your take on, uh, on sort of the initial moves that Biden has made, what you think they may signal, if anything. No, I think they're very superficial and symbolic, right? Um, It's what Biden's been talking about in his speeches. Like, we want to go back to normal. We want to restore our prestige. And and that's what U.S. imperialism is trying to do because it's 
its institutions and its uh, prestige has been diminished um, over the past years, decade even. Um, so, you know, it's part of Biden's political strategy to do that while offering us, you know, symbolic concessions. And I think we're going to, in this short term, we're going to see more concessions coming from the Biden administration, like the immigration package, the stimulus package that's been promised. But it's really crumbs. For us, it's crumbs because the capitalists are getting billions. They're getting everything they want. Um, well, not everything, but you know what I'm trying to say. Like They've already gotten everything getting, they want. Yeah, well, it's it's complicated because it's, it's, that, four, it's that four trillion dollar slush fund. Yeah, um, you know, like they're also in a complicated situation right now, um, which is why we're we're experiencing this crisis. But um, they're getting billions, and we're getting we're not even getting two thousand dollars. Like it's insane. People can't afford to pay their rent. We're all in debt um and we're sacrificing our lives to make profits for people who biden is giving billions of dollars to so it's all concessions it's all crumbs and it's all symbolic to make us believe that biden's on our side and i think after a certain point when the party's over the facade is going to be become more clear to more and more working people um, because they're still going to be struggling um, and it's going to be really hard for Biden to manage the situation. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with it, almost everything you just said. And uh, I would say that the, from what I've seen, the stimulus bill that Biden is proposing, although I agree it's not enough, I don't think it's a giveaway like the other stimulus bills have been. I the things that have been, there are the things that are in it are, are mostly good things. I, I I don't really have too much of a problem with the what's in the bill. My criticism is is that it's not enough, and I agree that this is these are all just concessions to make it appear Biden is on our side when he's really not. And and he he he's probably going to do like a lot of good things in these first couple months but that's what the first couple of months of your administration is for that's when you do all the good things exactly so so it's 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 what it's what do you do like after your first hundred days because your first hundred days is your like most influential period as your as president right and I think it's so important. I think you're right. And I think it's so important for us to bring up as much as possible, like any awful thing or not even awful, any, anything that could be better in his first 100 days, because so many people are giving, as you said, that's the point. So many people are going to give him 100 days to like feel comfortable and then stop paying attention if he successfully makes them feel comfortable. And I do think that it's, it's so important to push back against that and to point out the holes where they are like as much as possible while people are still you know technically te you know tentatively paying attention and one hole i will poke because it would not be a news dive episode until i i complain about imperialism uh is that yeah. i mean <laughs> i was gonna go there next too i was like Good. not just about no. us in the u.s before before <laughs> uh, before we go on to uh imperialism can I, I just want to say uh, something about the, the $2,000 check. Yes. I, the 1,400 plus yes. 600 checks. <laughs> this is the dumbest thing ever. And see, like, the, the difference, the $600 difference between 1,400 and 2,000 isn't, like, isn't, like, this big difference, all right? And sure, you can, you can make the point, like, oh, it's 600 plus 1,400 is 2,000. But that's not the point. The point is that Democrats won Georgia because they pushed these $2,000 checks. They had ads the with, like, checks with $2,000 yes. written on them. Like, that's how they won. And, and they had these ads after the $600 has already been sent out. 
Like I had $600 in my bank account when Democrats were running 2K check ads in Georgia. And and Biden was, was out at a rally promising to day cash. It's all about it's all about the messaging. If you say you're going to give $2,000, you give $2,000 because you because people don't trust the Democratic Party. People don't tr- unless you're unless you're like already like a, a Democrat that's just falling in line with the party. People don't trust the Democratic Party. This was an opportunity to build to build trust with 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 uh with uh your base. It's like you like you you vote for us, we'll give you two thousand dollars. But they can't even do that right, and that and that just really pisses me off. Yeah, I mean, you know me. I'm I'm all for people losing uh, trust in the Democratic Party, but I I also do think it's uh, kind of hilarious that like they don't even like they don't even know how to really keep the trust. Like it, they're they're really it's, way it's... too successful for how bad they are at running a party. But uh... and then when and then when you go and then when everyone's like, oh, but you said two thousand dollars, you're like, oh, but six hundred plus fourteen hundred equals two thousand. That's just like really condescending. And just, it makes them sound bad. Like, yeah, it's bad. It's 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 terrible messaging, yeah. and and like it, it originated from what originally was good messaging, which is a problem with the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is terrible on messaging, and they finally had some good messaging with these checks, and they screwed it up on the on the follow through. Miriam, do you have a take on that? No, it's just the Dems being Dems, you know. Yeah, well, that's that's what I was going to say. Like, I don't dis- like, I don't disagree with that. That's that's yeah. the Democratic Party being the Democratic Party. I mean, even like two thousand dollars is like nowhere near what people actually need to survive. Yeah, we we should be we shouldn't be talking about fourteen hundred or two k. We should be talking about two k per month. But I, I think for me, and I think this is sort of like a big point we all are, are all getting at, is that obviously like like we sh- we should have more money, but it's it's I don't expect that from the Democratic Party. Obviously, we should be demanding no. it uh, no matter what. But like for me, it's that they just lie. They're they're able to lie so blatantly, and still there are people who are loyal to them because uh, I guess because Republicans don't even bother lying, so. I, I mean, it, it really, it really is just gross. Like, it, it's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't even hide, like, whose interests they're there to protect. <laughs> that's been one of the most interesting things, I think, because it's, it's been happening for a while, but I feel like especially this election, like, they really did just go full mask off. Like, all of their posturing as more progressive that they made such a point of during 2016 uh, they they gave it all up. Like they they don't care anymore. And I do I do want I do want to pivot. I want to pivot to imperialism, um, which is just that a perfect example of this is Venezuela. Now I, I also don't talk about when I talk about imperialism. I actually will admit I don't talk about Venezuela as much as much specifically because it, it, I haven't paid anywhere near as much like attention to it as I should. I should be more informed on that. But uh, the, the, the blatant example is that Guaido, uh, who Trump uh, and his people spent their administration trying to uh, make the, the official president of Venezuela, now Biden, like his first day, he's like, yeah, we're going to recognize uh, Juan Guaido as the president of what an embarrassment Venezuela, which like there's no difference there like i mean really you no. know their foreign policy is like always the one where like they're both just so equally imperialist yeah i mean i mean like he uh, he's talking uh biden's secretary of state is talking about working with marco rubio to overthrow the venezuelan government and install Juan Guaido as a puppet dictator so we could steal their oil. It's, it's so obvious. And it's so funny because Juan Guaido uh, is like a laughing stock amongst the world because because Trump uh, handled that situation so so poorly. Wait, he tried, didn't he try to overthrow the Venezuelan government twice during his presidency and failed? Like The, the Democratic line was they weren't mad that he tried to coup Venezuela. They were mad that he didn't effectively coup Venezuela. 
when Trump brought uh, uh, when Trump uh, brought Guaido into in the Congress and gave him a, a standing ovation at his, I forget what year it was, but at one of his State of the Union addresses, Nancy Pelosi and the entire Democratic half of the of the, of the Congress stood up and clapped for him too. No, I, I just wanted to say that, like, to me, it really shows, like, specifically within Latin America, like, how hard the U.S. is trying to restore its hegemony, you know? Like, um, we saw in Bolivia what happened recently, you know, what's going on in Chile is a challenge to U.S. hegemony, people taking to the streets there, rejecting the neoliberalism of Piñera, voting for a new constitution. And I think we're going to see more protests in Latin America because it's just been so devastated by the coronavirus. Ecuador, I think, is going to have development soon, yeah. Ecuador, Peru. So I don't think it's out of the question that we're going to see a lot of, you know, people rising up against not only their repressive governments, um, but also... The U.S., the influence of the U.S. that's been plundering the resources and exploiting, over-exploiting the people of Latin America. And the U.S. is, is not so popular there right now. Um, and this is just a sign that U.S. imperialism is really, you know, trying to restore its hegemony in a region where it's been, been challenged. And I, and I think... Another thing that's important to think about is like, I know that China is trying to have influence and has had a lot of economic relations with countries like Argentina, for example. And so we could see this as a region that becomes very contested in the growing tensions between China and the U.S. as well. Yeah, and China has become more imperialist but they they do their imperialism in in a different way and i and like if you had to I mean like i don't like imperialism but if you had to choose a form of imperialism um i think china's imperialism is a bit more humane because we're the united states we go in we we coup the government and we put in like some brutal brutal dictator in there that that rules why they sell us their resources but china is doing their uh this Belt and Road Initiative, where they're actually going into these poorer countries, and and like building up their infrastructure. I mean, like the country and doing this, it's put it's putting the country financially uh, re- reliant on China, but China isn't uh, overthrowing democratically elected governments. Yeah, I mean the like. The situation with China is really complicated because on the one hand, like the Chinese Communist Party bureaucracy is only out for itself. Oh, I'm yeah. so excited to see how many listeners we lose. We went after the uh the 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 democratic socialist wing. And I'm loving this. Sorry, I just had to interject that. No, I, I mean I agree with you though. Our listeners right? should know that. And I characterize China as, as a capitalist country, like China has a capitalist class, yeah. but at the same time, um, and we're seeing, I would say, like, China is a country with uh, imperialism under construction, I guess, so to speak. Because when you look at China versus the U.S., the U.S. military is still far more powerful than any other military in the world. Like, China doesn't even come close. Of course, it's like, getting closer but compared to the u.s there's still no sort of country that can challenge its its military economic strength so what does that mean for socialists for people on the left is like you know obviously we denounce u.s imperialism we also denounce the chinese communist party the chinese capitalist class but you know we're part of the working class and the working class is international the working classes in China, the working classes in Venezuela. We don't support Maduro. We don't support Guaido. We support the working class in Venezuela. Um, yeah. And I think it's like sort of hard to wrap your head around sometimes, but then you think about it and you're like, wait, that actually makes a lot of sense. Like, 
just because we don't support U.S. imperialism doesn't mean we support the authoritarian, repressive governments that don't have the same interests as U.S. imperialism. Well, um, yeah. I'm reading a really good book right now on uh, the anti-war movement in Viet- uh, not the 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 anti-Vietnam War movement in the U.S. and it's it's like nine hundred close to one thousand pages of just like a, a guy's personal account. It goes into like all the disputes between the different groups in the anti-war movement, uh, and it has been a really cool book for like looking at just like the different takes on how to oppose U.S. imperialism. Um, and the book is called Out Now. I wish I knew the author off the top of my head, but actually, if Sophie, you want to fact check that while I talk out now is the name of the book. Um, but yeah, and it's, it's really interesting because it, it goes into a lot of these conversations that are so relevant right now. And I mean, I just really think that we, we really, and, and I'll, I'll give our listeners the benefit of the doubt, even if you're not left, if you're, like, anti-imperialist, if you truly do want the U.S. to stop exerting, you know, influence on other countries, we really do need to start having these discussions over the role of imperialism, because Biden has hawks all in his cabinet. I mean, it's, it's a really terrifyingly hawkish policy, and just today they approved a secretary of defense who Lloyd Austin who is he's not within the the range of where you have to be out of military service before being able to be secretary of defense and they waived that for Mattis when Trump appointed him and they now waived it for Lloyd Austin so it's two times in a row that the secretary of defense is becoming increasingly um, attached to the military and he also has uh, background with Raytheon, so it, I mean, it really is. We're seeing, and I, I could talk forever on Biden's cabinet, um, but yeah, these—they're really just blatantly pro-war people, um, and so we really need to talk about how we, as people in imperialist countries, can oppose these things. And the reason I brought up the book is because the whole—I'm not finished with it, so. So who knows, maybe, Sophie can't find it, but who, who knows, maybe uh, it'll change. But right now the theme is out now. It's the idea that like what you can do, what you can demand to support workers of that country is you demand an end to U.S. imperialism. You demand that we get our presence out now. Um, and so I, I think that that is like just, uh, at least to me, it's like a simple line, but it really is like a thing we need to guide us. It's like we need to, we need to support the internationalist working class um, and we sh- I don't think we should be wasting our time, um, you know, supporting necessarily like hyping up their governments. I don't think that effectively opposes imperialism. I think that demanding the U.S. imperialism out of it uh, or whatever Western country is demanding that they get out, that allows workers to fight for themselves because they don't have to worry about uh, another country interfering. And um, yeah, I personally just think that like, trying to you know push support for uh governments for you know bureaucratic governments uh that we are imperializing isn't even the most like even even i personally don't agree with these governments but even if you agree with them it's not a way to build an anti-imperialist movement you do that by demanding an end to the presence of the u.s that that's that's my take on it that's my little tangent and uh just i just want to make one more point on the the u.s china uh topic our uh u.s military is still like by far the, the strongest military in the world no like no one's competing with us militarily at the moment where china can compete with the united states is economically china currently their economy is still growing how big how big is the chinese pop- population they have like over a billion people don't they like their population is huge and and the more the more people you have in your country the more economic output you can achieve so just them being at least three times the size of the united states just population wise uh, they're they're going to pass us 
economically at some point. Their economy is still growing. Whereas the United States, we we probably hit our economic peak in like the 60s and 70s. And we've been on the we've been experiencing like late late stage capitalism ever since. We're on the we're on the economic decline, which is why we need to make a transition to an the next economic system because our current one is failing and whereas china's their theirs is currently on the rise and that's why conservatives tend to be so hawkish towards china because conservatives fully believe in uh u.s uh being number one u.s being the best and they just can't stand the idea of china passing us economically even though it's inevitable. By the way, the author of the book is Fred Halstead. Yeah, just sort of in response to that, I mean, I think one thing that's important to keep in mind too is like the U.S. capitalist class profits off of the exploitation of Chinese cheap labor. <laughs> like, so the, That's also true. The economies of China and the U.S. like are super intertwined. So the economic situation actually causes like some complications and some some frictions as well. Um, yeah, and, they, and they also and also they ruin movies because you can't include certain things in movies because they have to be shown to a Chinese audience. So yeah, so like it's it's really complicated. Um, and you know this whole policy that's been like a hallmark of neoliberalism of like globalization and like these economies working together to their, to the benefit of their, you know, bourgeoisies, like that has imploded. I don't know if we're going to go back to that and it's not going to be peaceful. You guys, like the last time, you know, the, the capitalist class like broke sort of in this way, we were, we had wars. Like it's so, um, I mean, it remains to be seen what actually happens, but um there's there's some pretty deep divisions among the global capitalist class right now um and i don't think it's going to be resolved peacefully especially as china as you said sort of grows um continues to try and challenge the u.s on both an economic basis but also in terms of its military you know it's gonna it's, it's gonna be like really turbulent times and Biden's policies that he's proposing right now, I don't know. I don't know if it's gonna, it's gonna be terrible obviously for the working class. I don't even know if it's gonna be able to get what the ruling class in the US wants because of this period that's been opened up. But for now, just from what I've been reading in terms of economics, what the US sort of strategy is, is to um, throw in a lot of stimulus to sort of mitigate the long-term impact and increase debt but keep the interest rates low and pray for the best. So I don't know. I don't know it's, if it's going to work, but that's what they're going to try and do. Well, and, just to be, and, just, and just to be fair, there, there is one thing foreign policy-wise Biden's done so far that I would say is good, is that he's re-entered the, the nuclear arms treaty that we had with Russia. Which ha- which may have actually, prevented a nuclear arms race. Yeah, we did. We did really need that one. I uh, I'm not gonna praise him for doing the bare minimum, but I will tell yes. people that if anyone again, tries to suggest that's a bad thing, it's not. We really needed that. Yeah. Um, again, 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 it's the bare minimum. But I, but like, we should call good things good things. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm also expecting he's gonna get pushback for stuff like that from all the people who want us to increase te- tensions with Russia, um, but. I, I mean, we're going to be doing a lot of covering of his foreign policy and whatnot, but uh, I do want to bring it back home before we wrap. I, I know, Miriam, I know that I didn't uh, originally invite you on to talk about this, but would you be at all interested in just like answering a few quick questions about the Hunts Point strike? Because I know that Left Voice has been covering that, and I want to make sure our listeners know what's going on. Yeah, to the best of my abilities, to be honest, I'm, I haven't been there yet. And I haven't been like super in the know about what's going on. But I will try to answer your questions to the best of my abilities. I mean, just I guess I don't really have any set questions. I guess like what you what you do know from I, I for for our listeners, what I've seen, uh, again, it's left voice has been doing a lot of coverage. And it also made a lot of attention recently because uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez 
visited the strikers um, instead of going to inauguration. What a I have my issues with her. We all we all know that, but uh, that did. I, I'll give it that made it go viral, which I was happy about. Um, but there are also outlets like Left Voice who have been covering it every single day. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's it's my understanding is these workers. I think at like a mar- a food market or something, they asked for like one dollar more, and that and that's like a measly demand. They asked for one dollar more, and their bosses were like, no. Uh, so now they're they're striking, um, and yeah, I, I guess can can you elaborate to yeah. the best that you're able to? No, it's it's like it's like a total slap in the face because not only have they not been willing to give a one dollar raise to these workers who work at what I believe is like the largest like wholesale produce market in the world you can fact check that but I'm pretty sure that's what I've been reading it's insane because so many workers have died at this market because of the pandemic um and they've been working during the pandemic so it's just like insane um but these these workers are so inspiring and it's just such a great example of the power of the working class and I know that they've uh they're still out there tonight Um, they've been offered a 30 cent raise, which is like still a slap in the face. And I don't know if they're going to take it. I think that's, it remains to be seen what's going to, how this is all going to unfold. It just really shows like how we can, you know, stand up in the face of this economic situation and the pandemic in our workplaces. And it's just been so great. Um, to see solidarity from other workers, like healthcare workers that are in left voice are out there right now um, showing their support. So I think this is like a really important moment and I hope that there is a domino effect. I hope this inspires and gives momentum to the labor movement. Well, where can people follow more of the coverage? Yeah, I mean, we are there pretty much every day, all day. So on our social media accounts, we've been interviewing workers. They've been giving us testimonials. Um, so leftvoice.com, we're on Instagram, Facebook. Oh, .org. Ah! <laughs> I always do that. And Twitter as well. Um, but also, like, if you're in the New York area, like, come out to the Bronx and we're on the ground. Well, Miriam Alanis, thank you so much for coming on the show. I it was great to have you back, uh, and it was great. It was great visiting DC with you. Uh, it was an adventure. Action. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a pleasure yeah. to be back on the show and also to have that experience with my comrade. <laughs> yes, thank you. All right, yeah. So that was our interview with Miriam Alanis of Left Voice. And if you liked their coverage, you should check them out. If you liked our coverage, you should check us out. We are at Newsdive Radio on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We have a Medium account, medium.com forward slash Newsdive. Shane has an article there. Shane, do you want to plug your article real quick? Uh, yes. I wrote. I wrote about the $15 minimum wage and talked about how stupid some of the arguments conservatives make against it. That is correct. They are stupid. And I appreciate you writing that. And people should read it and people should share it. People should also listen to our podcast, uh, which you can find at anchor.fm forward slash Newsdive, and you can search Newsdive in your little search bar on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the podcast platforms. We've been, we've been Newsdive. I'm Sam Carliner reporting for Left Voice on the ground in D.C., where Joe Biden was just inaugurated and gave his first speech as president. Biden's speech largely focused on unity. But what is unity to us? And what is unity to them? His talk of unity was hollow, discussing how, as Americans, we shouldn't be divided. But he couldn't acknowledge the root cause, capitalism, and how that has fueled many Americans' rejection of bourgeois democracy and enabled the far right to exploit people's desperation. 
Along with ignoring the root cause of division, his speech glossed over some of the most immediate threats impacting the working class. What do hollow calls for unity do for workers who are suffering under the brutal coronavirus, which has already killed 402,000 people in the U.S. alone? Completely absent was any acknowledgement of the coming eviction crisis that workers in the United States are facing. This speech failed to acknowledge some of the threats of state violence that disproportionately impact black and brown communities, such as police attacks on black workers in the U.S., draconian immigration policy, and mass incarceration that he and his vice president, Kamala Harris, are champions of. Biden's unity is not about uniting us as a country to solve our most dangerous problems. Now we are being told that we need to unite, that workers should unite as a country with the capitalist class. But we know that this will not get us anywhere. But if there is any takeaway, it's that yes, unity is necessary. The unity of the global working class in the fight against capitalism and all of the dangers to our lives that come with it. This speech and how weak it was shows that we cannot rely on this bourgeois administration or any other bourgeois administration to fight for us. We have to unite and fight for ourselves.